0: Isaiah forty, twelve through 31. The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it with goldsmith, overlays it with gold, and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heaven like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth is emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely as their stem has taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. It is popular in Christian circles to say things. Like, I want to live for the glory of God. I want to, as a person, as someone who has submitted my life to Jesus, I want to live for God's glory. When we come to a passage like this, and what we've even seen so far in Isaiah chapter 40, if you've heard the previous two sermons, you probably got that this chapter. And really this will continue through chapter 55 that we're looking at in Isaiah. This chapter is filled with weight. A a lot of weight and a lot of questions here. Rhetorical questions asked to us as people in order that we might really see who God is. God wants to show himself to his people and he puts himself on display by comparing by comparing himself to many different things in this passage. The weight, though, that we feel when we read these verses is not a weight that's designed to crush us, however. This is a weight that's designed to renew us. Think of it less like the trash compactor that's Pushing in the walls against Luke and Han and Leia in Star Wars A New Hope. And more like the weighted blanket that you're sitting under while you're watching Star Wars A New Hope. I don't own a weighted blanket. Uh, I read briefly about the phenomenon this week. Like, is there actually some kind of real medical thinking around a weighted blanket? And when you're under stress, your heart beats quickly. Many of you know what it's like to be under stress. And according to Penn Medicine, a weighted blanket can, quote, help to calm you by activating activating your parasympathetic nervous system, which lowers your heart rate when you're stressed. So it's a calming effect that it has when you sit under a weighted blanket. But there is weight to it. It's right there in the name. Again, when we're in Isaiah chapter 40, God's people have been carried off into exile in Babylon. They were under weight. And they were under a weight, under a stress, under a pressure that we likely will never in our lives understand. Carried from their homes, from their beds, carried off into Babylon by an evil oppressor. If you look at verse 27 in the passage that we just read. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? This is what they are saying. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They think to themselves, they're believing, God has turned his face from me. He has forgotten me. He has forgotten the promises that he's made to us as his people. And this type of pressure that the exile brought left them feeling forgotten and hopeless. These are the words of someone who feels forgotten and hopeless. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. But the answer for them, and the answer for us, when we feel this way, is not to have the pressure lifted. Not to have the weight lifted from us, but to have a different weight applied altogether, a weight that will, in fact, renew us. And what is this weight? The weight that is described in this passage is the weight of the glory of God. And the word for glory can literally here can be translated as weight. We want to see the glory of God and we say things like, I want to live for the glory of God. But in order to live for the glory of God, we need to feel the weight of God and the fullness of who he is. And him revealing himself to us here is revealing to us his glory so that we might live as those who see his glory who feel the weight of his glory. He's not weightless. He is the God who created everything, who is Lord of all, who is totally unique and entirely holy. Albert Einstein is recorded as saying often that he had not much care for organized religion. And one of the primary reasons he didn't have much uh, regard for organized religion, mainly Christianity, based on where he lived, was that the preaching in the churches was weightless. Einstein had observed the known universe in ways that not many people had. He saw things and knew things and understood things in ways that very few people in the history of the world, to his point, had seen or thought of, observed. And he was shocked at how flippant preaching was, how centered on the individual's thoughts and feelings it seemed to be. Preachers would talk about the glory of God from time to time, but one writer comments that Einstein believed that preachers were just not talking about the real thing. But the glory of God is something that we must long to see, a weight that we must long to feel. When we gather together for congregational worship like we're doing right now, we must long not necessarily to be relieved by burdens. We must come to congregational worship to be properly burdened. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is saying that you labor under a world, in a world that's full of sin. You, in fact, are a sinful person, and that there is a weight that tries to oppress you. It ties up all sorts of burdens on you and sets them on your shoulders. And when you acknowledge your sin before God, the world swoops in very quickly and says, you got to deal with that. You need to deal with the problem that you've created before you can come to this holy God. And it leaves us feeling oppressed. It leaves us feeling a weight that we can't be free from. But Jesus is saying, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden because of the burdens that the world has tied up and laid upon you. Come to me, not to be relieved from the burden, but to be properly burdened. Because he says that he has a yoke and a burden that is easy and light. This is the proper burden he's talking about. And we learn in the New Testament that the glory of God is seen clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as a church, the weight of his glory rests upon his people. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we long to see Christ. We long to come to Christ. We trust Christ for all that we are. We see the cross of Christ as the most important event in human history where the glory of God is summed up. It may seem ugly. It may seem bothersome to us. But in fact, there we see most clearly God, the love that he showed for his people in sending his son to die. In Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 31, then our passage this morning, there are four things that will guide our time together. Four things that I want you to see here that are of utmost importance for us in understanding God's glory and feeling the weight of it. The first is God as creator, and we'll see that in the first three verses in 12 through 14, and then the last two in 25 through 26. The second thing we'll see is God as Lord in verses 15 through 17, and then again in 21 through 24, and then right in the middle of the passage, we see thirdly, God as one in verses 18 through 20. And then Isaiah does the concluding work for us, and he wraps everything up neatly in verses 27 through 31. This is God's application for us. Those are our four points this morning. We will take them in turn. So first, firstly, verses 12 through 14 and verses 25 and 26. This is God as creator. God as creator. Now again, um, we affirm what's spoken here to be true. Uh, But sometimes that becomes a weightless endeavor. And so Isaiah strives, as God reveals to him through his Holy Spirit, what to record to the people who are carried off into exile, the weight of the reality of of these truths. God as creator. God created everyone and everything. And immediately we learn in verse 12, a question is asked to us. It's a rather long question. But it begins out by saying, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This means all of them, all of the, all of the waters. The total volume, this is an estimate, a, a, pretty, a pretty strong estimate. The total volume of water on earth is estimated to be 333 million cubic miles of water. I don't know how to think about that. 97.5% of those 333 million cubic miles of water is salt water. 2.5% is fresh water. And 0.3% of that fresh water is in liquid form on the surface. This is man's best guess. God knows exactly how much water there is down to the molecule and whatever smaller subdivisions there are of that. We have no idea where else there might be water in the universe or how much, but God knows. He has measured all of the universe's water in his hand. This is what this says who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And it's like not his whole hand. It's one hand here, just when he cup it, all of it, he measured it. That's like when you brush your teeth and rinse. God measured all of creation. He made everything that exists and knows exactly how much sky there is, how much dust there is. How much mountain there is? Archimedes said, Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. But where do you get the lever? God measures billions of light years across a universe billions and billions of light years. We estimate somewhere around. Ninety-three billion light years across the universe, which is ever-expanding. And it says, he marked off the heavens with a span. That's this to this. And so who and what do you think God had to ask when he made the world? Who, Who did he have to consult? Where did he seek understanding? That's the question that the text uh, the text asks us, verse fourteen. Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? I watched several YouTube videos this week on things, how to do some things around our house or with our vehicles. But God didn't pull up a this old house video for tips on how to frame up the Andromeda galaxy. No consultation was needed. So what's being told to us here? God is creator. But even when we say those words, we say them with not ever enough weight to them. We say them because it's a file heading somewhere in our brain, then we quickly flip away. Isaiah is saying, don't run away from that truth too quickly. Understand better who God is and what he is and has done. At Christmas time, we celebrate that God came to earth and took on flesh. Christmas was a few weeks ago. and the person of Jesus Christ, God came to earth. In the Bible, God's Word is continually communicating two things to us about who God is. First, that God is imminent. He's here among us. You can hear it in the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is imminent. He is here among us, among his people. He is present in the person of Jesus Christ. But also God's Word communicates to us. When we focus on the eminence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the word of God who took on flesh in and among his people around Christmas, this passage is focusing on what we would say is God's transcendence. He is, God is other. He is different from us. There are many, many things that we cannot fathom about him. But these two truths exist at the same time. It's not like God is choosing imminence in one moment and the next moment he's choosing transcendence. He is both imminent and he is both transcendent. Equally as much all of the time. This passage is communicating God's transcendence and there is communicating God's glory. And if we look at verses 25 and 26, God asks this question. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? He's saying, which one of you is bold enough with your words to compare yourself or another person to God? If you're bold enough to do that, look around. Look around at the created universe and ask yourself if you can measure all that you can see. I don't even have a tape measure that can measure the length of my house. How would I ever begin to measure how much sky there is? Because God is creator, what seems unfathomable and the questions that are asked here that seem unfathomable for us is perfectly manageable for him. But then we see the passage move on in verses 15 through 17 and again in verses 21 through 24. This is God as Lord, God as Lord. We often use the word Lord as a title or another word for God. We see that stand in in the Old Testament for the name of God. But sometimes the word Lord, in the definition of it, the way we think about it, is someone who has power or authority, someone who is a ruler. God is the creator of everyone and everything. And that means by default that he is Lord, that he is ruler of all. He says that man's organized efforts in this world, the largest effort of organization would be in here a a people group, a nation. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. People groups come in together for the sake of building societies, all of them like a drop of water in a five-gallon pail. Ancient Rome, the Ming Dynasty, the British Empire, the United States of America are as nothing before him. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Each of the kings or presidents or emperors that rule in these contexts, we're told in verse 22, are like grasshoppers at his feet. Look at verse 24. These nations, these kings, these empires, they rise and they fall. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. When the wind blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. They don't last. They come and they go. No world power can hold its power forever. In fact, they are to be compared to the crops of the field. Men plant their crops. You plant your garden with great aspirations. And when it comes to maturity, or before even it comes to maturity, the wind and the storm comes, and they are eliminated and quickly forgotten. But what we learn is that it is God who sits enthroned over creation from the beginning, from the foundation of the earth. He is given authority over all things because he made all things. Because all things were created by him and through him and for him. God is Lord. Then look at verses 18 through 20. This is God as one. Now, when we say God is one, oftentimes our minds go to the monotheistic thought that God is one, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. But there's something contained in that statement that we don't always acknowledge together. And that is that God's oneness means that he's entirely unique. That he's entirely different and other and unique. Because he is the creator of everyone and everything and because he is Lord over all creation, that means that he is totally unique because there's no one else who fits that category. There's no one else who can say, I created everyone and everything. I'm the one who rules over all things. In the middle of this passage is where we find the heart of what God is telling his people. In 18 through 20. He reminds them, yes, at the beginning and at the end that he is the creator. He reminds them again at the beginning and the end that he has authority over everything. But in the middle, he addresses the one thing that has caused, the very sin that has caused his people to be carried off into exile in Babylon. That's idolatry. Idolatry. He highlights here the foolishness of idolatry. Now the examples that are given here are ones that are not terribly relatable to us as people in our culture. Most of us don't have hire a craftsman to create a little trinket that we put on ourselves and put some gold over it like our golden bars not on idols we don't think about it like Indiana Jones the bag of sand and... you know what I'm talking about but at the heart of what's being said here what we naturally do as people is we want to reduce God to a size that we can control. And that's the heart of what's being said here. If I could take God and he could put him right here, and I could put something precious around it to make me feel like it's a little bit sacred, then it's under my my control. Again, we don't typically do that materially at least not in the way that is like this. We might do it with a lot of material. The reality is that we often make idols out of all sorts of things. We want to control it. We don't want it to move unless we tell it to move. We don't want it to act unless we tell it to act. We don't want it to do anything unpredictable. We want it to be perfectly within the realm of our control. And we oftentimes do this with good gifts. Brenda read it earlier. Every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven. Money, material, work, family, good gifts from God that we can begin to worship as God because we feel like we have some semblance of control over them. We can say things. We begin to derive our worth from these things. They cannot offer us any lasting worth, however. Good gifts from God that we hold in the wrong place. But sometimes, more often than we probably realize, our idolatry is simply casting God in our image. Casting God in our image, making God to be more in line with our thoughts instead of who he is. So yes, we run into the temptation that we would make money our God or material our God or family our God or work our God. But the idolatry at its core comes down to the fact that we want to cast God in our image rather than openly acknowledging that we are made in his. We say things like, of course God is Lord of creation. I read it in verses 12 through 14 and verses 25 through 26. God is creator, of course he is. And God is ruler over all things, of course he is. We know that to be true, we read our Bibles. But then we think, within the next 10 minutes, but why won't God do what I want him to do? Or maybe you hear or have thought, I just can't understand why a loving God would send a person to hell. These statements put us in the position of God. They put us in this position where we are passing judgments down upon the creator and the ruler of all things. To say these things is idolatrous. Because we've put ourselves in the place of God and attempted to cast God in our own image. If you look at verses 18 through 20 again, you see these to be, the words to be sarcastic. To show the sheer stupidity of idolatry. He doesn't do anything but just describe what idolatry is. He doesn't doesn't say, "Don't, don't do idolatry. There's not even a command here given. There's a question posed. Who will you like in God? And then in 19 and 20, just describes idolatry. But if you've read the Creator portion, and you've read the Lord portion, and you come to this portion, you can't help but think, boy, this is dumb. That's the design. Boy, we, as people, have missed the mark. We have, in fact, tried to cast God into our image. What is, in fact, the solution for this sin? God is creator and God is Lord and a block of wood that can get knocked over just because you walk heavily through a room, is that what you're going to worship? There is nothing unique about the things that we try to worship. There is nothing unique about the wood that they craft an idol out of. Verse 16, and describing God as Lord, Lebanon, Lebanon is known for its cedar trees. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. You could cut down all the trees and burn all of them. But you could also cut them down and make a bunch of idols out of them. They're not unique. There are forests and forests. Cords upon cords. All of those tens of thousands of trees could be an idol. But God is entirely unique. He is the only God. And so idolatry becomes pretty silly. That brings us to look at verses 27 through 31 and God's application for us. God just tells us how we are to respond and what we might be feeling, or and more importantly, what his people might be feeling in exile in Babylon. But we can draw some pretty clear through lines to us today as well. So this will serve as. The conclusion, five verses here. And several points of conclusion that we're led to think about. The first thing in verse 27. Keep in mind, God is creator, God is Lord, God is one. Keep in mind those things. Allow the weight of that to Rest on you as you think about how God relates to us, his people. Verse 27. God reminds us that he is near when we believe he is far. God reminds us that he is near when we believe he is far. Again, the people of God in exile wondered where God is. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They're saying, God can't see us here in Babylon. He's back in Jerusalem. We are here. He's disposed of us in this faraway land. He's allowed us to be carried out. We carry out the trash to the curb every Tuesday morning. That is not what God has done. In fact, God is revealing Himself in a way that He has not revealed Himself to His people. He is telling them truth that is absolutely necessary for them to realize that they have not been left behind. But God has gone with them and has gone before them and has hemmed them in on every side. And so for us, the truth we must lash on to is the fact that God is near even when we believe in our hearts that he is far And oftentimes, the place where we believe like he is far off is in our suffering, in the difficulties that we face, in the hardship that comes. You've heard these verses before, but these are absolutely essential for the Christian to internalize. Three passages from the New Testament. The suffering in this life is used by God to bring about Christ's likeness in in us. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1 6 through 8. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you read those verses, you read those passages, and you think to yourself, I am suffering. Where is God? God is far. But when you're suffering, God is producing something in you. If he allowed you to be carried to the curb like the trash on Tuesday morning, he would not be caring to produce anything in you. He didn't think, let them be carried away so that I can be gone from them. God didn't send his people into exile in Babylon because he forgot them or because he wanted to be done with them. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He showed them love by allowing them to be disciplined through exile in Babylon so that they would see their sin and see the very thing that had broken the relationship that they had with him. So that they would return to him, so that they would be restored. He allowed them to go so that all obstacles would be cleared away, so that they would feel the weight of the glory of God upon them, so that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had not left them. Friends, when you meet suffering, The answer is to run to Christ. When you feel like you're in the wilderness, when you're in exile, remember that God is not far off. Remember that He has demonstrated His great love for you in Jesus. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is to say, when we abandoned God, When the exile was voluntary, he came for us. It's not like he just looked up and said, well, where did they go? We go find him. We abandoned God. He came for us. He didn't create further distance between us. but rather he sent Jesus into the world. The promise of God fulfilled. The promise that he makes over and over and over again in Scripture, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Fulfilled in Christ. Because Jesus came into the world, you can trust God fully to never abandon you or leave you alone to yourself. No matter what you feel, you can trust God will never abandon you or leave you if you are in Christ. Jesus cried from the cross. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus in that moment was forsaken, genuinely forsaken by God, in order that when joined to Christ, you will never be forsaken by God. That is what he achieved in that moment. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus becoming the curse for us means that we will never be cursed. But now Jesus is at the Father's right hand. And Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is so knit with, with Him that it is with Him legitimately. Your life isn't something that's down here, it's up there. It's hidden with Christ in God. And to forsake you now, brothers and sisters... If you're in Christ, to forsake you now would be the equivalent of forsaking Himself, and He cannot do it. He will never leave you, and He'll never forsake you. So to say, we might feel it in our hearts, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God, but we must treat it with the truth that He'll never leave us nor forsake us, and that that promise finds its yes and amen. For eternity in Jesus. God reminds us that he is near when we believe he is far. Look then secondly in conclusion at verse 28. God reminds us that our faith is a common sense faith. This is I hope you're picking up on this. If God is creator, if God is Lord, if God is one, then it makes sense, logically, to trust him. How God tells us to respond to the reality that he has created everyone and everything and owns everything is not a leap of logic. If God, because God, is the creator and Lord of that creation, what objection would we have to trusting him? Either God is lying to us about who he is here, or there's no common sense in trusting something else. Is there a man or a business or a government or an organization which will last forever? You know the answer. The answer is no. No. Is there one created thing that could create something else out of nothingness with a word? The answer again, you know the answer is no. And so it only makes sense to afford your trust to the only one who can and who has. The only one who will last forever and has, has been before the beginning of time in eternity past and who will extend into eternity future. Who created everything out of nothing. Charles Spurgeon said about this passage, Faith, which seems so difficult after all, is nothing better than sanctified common sense. It is the most common sense thing in all the world to trust in omnipotence, in infinite, unchanging love, and infallible truth. To trust anywhere else needs a great deal of justification. But to trust in God needs no apology. What, why would you trust in something other than God? some fairly complex reasoning would need to be given. Why would you trust God? The answer is simple. Because he created everyone and everything. He stands as ruler of all things. He is inexhaustible, unchanging, and omnipotent. But we want to finally, in our sinful nature, we want to finally trust in chariots and horses and organizations and presidents and governments and military powers and our paycheck and hard work. Again, the silliness in the way that Isaiah structures this is apparent. Trusting God is common sense. Praise God that he hasn't made this too difficult to understand. Praise the Lord that he has made this easy for us to understand. He is great and above all things, created all things, is Lord of all things. Trust him. Done. Anyone who tells you it's harder than that, Is trying to sell you something, isn't concerned about your eternal state, or maybe something far more sinister. God reminds us that our faith is common sense faith. If you look at verses 29 and 30, God reminds us that the burdens of this world are too much for us to bear alone. I can handle this myself, is a faithless response to difficulty in this life. I can handle this. You may be the type of person who's like, I'm going to buckle down and get through this. But you can't. You will run up against something in your life that you cannot get through on your own. No matter how gifted, how hard you work, you have a breaking point where your strength will fail. And may God show it to you quickly so that you would trust him and him alone. I don't say that flippantly. May God show it to you where your limits are so that you'll trust him fully. One of the ways that God lifts burdens from us is through the local church. Paul says in Galatians 6-2 that the local church exists to bear the burdens of one another. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The church is commanded to bear the burdens of one another. But as a church, we must realize that we rely on God fully for the strength to live according to this directive. It's not just spreading out the burden, it's bringing the burden to Jesus. And so, if you're suffering, if you're going through difficulty, don't clam up and disappear. Press into the body of Christ that has given you to bear your burdens with you. It is foolishness. To pray, God, give me strength for today, but resist the way that he answers the prayer. It is given to us here. The way that he has designed his church is to often be the way that he gives strength to suffering, worn out, tired people who have seen clearly their limits. Maybe you've experienced difficulty and someone said the right thing or just showed up and listened to you. And it gave you the strength to continue. May God use us to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fourth thing in verse 31. God reminds us that his timing is perfect. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait for the Lord. One of the reasons we like to. Control God is because we like things in our timing. We like to take things in our own hands. If I did just did this or just this happened this way, everything would be better. But again, God doesn't tell us to buckle down and figure it out. He tells us to wait for him. Since God is the creator and the Lord of all creation, waiting for him makes sense. If you know that God, it is God alone who can renew your strength, you certainly would cry out to him and you would be patient for his timing. When we come to believe that God is God and we are not, then we can begin to trust his timing. Final thing this morning, verse 31 again, that second half. God reminds us that the weight of his glory is not designed to crush us. It's designed to renew us. Friends, sometimes we recoil at the challenges God's word brings to us because they're often heavy, because we feel the weight of them and we think, I want to be free from weight, I don't want to be burdened. We seek levity and comedy in our culture because our lives are full of weight and that that weight feels like it's going to crush us. situations and sin that lead us there the weight of the exile for god's people here in isaiah 40 that threatened god's people now god invited them to exchange their burden from that situation and that sin to his glory brothers and sisters if you're feeling burdened this morning the answer for you not is not to escape burden but to be properly burdened. To behold your God. To see His glory. To be burdened by His glory and for His glory. But again, this burden, this yoke is light and easy, and it comes to us through Jesus. The weight of God's glory does not crush us. It renews us. Because it says, I'm out of the equation. God is creator, he is Lord, I trust him. We see it, we feel the weight of it. The creator of all things, the ruler of all things, God all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, eternal, infallible, unchanging, says to us, come to me. But he doesn't just say, look, he promises to renew us with himself. Everything that we need is found in him and in him alone. Everything that we need. And by beholding our God in his glory, we're renewed, knowing that no matter our circumstances, he will never leave us and never forsake us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the clarity with which you communicate who you are to us in this passage. God, there are many of us who are feeling very worn out, very tired. Situations that have caused us to feel burdened. That cause us not to seek levity, but to seek you. Would you cause us in these moments as we respond in song to see you clearly for who you are and to run to you, to be properly burdened, to see your glory beholding you fully. May we acknowledge together that you are God, that all else that we pursue are small imitations that should be forsaken quickly. God, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.